0: The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. If you would turn with me to Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30, that's the passage we're going to be looking at today in the Gospel of Luke. Pastor J.R. has already read a portion of this passage. We're going to be going all the way through verse 30. And if you are a parent of a college student or parent of a, uh, someone in the military, perhaps this Christmas you had a sweet homecoming. Children have been gone for a while, maybe f- other family members have been gone from the home for a while, a few months, maybe years, and this Christmas you enjoyed a sweet homecoming. They came home and for the first time in a long time and you're able to see them, have conversation with them, get caught up with how life is going. And it's really just a sweet time, and we're familiar with these kinds of homecomings. Hallmark movies are made about these kind of homecomings, and we enjoy it when someone we haven't seen for a long time, part of our family or friends, they come home, they've been gone a while, and we can welcome them, and it's sweet. Well, we're going to look at a homecoming that was not so sweet. It began well, but it didn't end well, at least not for the host's. Jesus' homecoming to Nazareth, we'll find out, did not go as well as you would hope. It was not a Hallmark movie. We'll start in verse 14, just to quickly set the stage here for our homecoming. Verse 14 really ties us in with what we saw last week. Pastor Justin preached on the temptations of Jesus, and we came up, we came up close and personal with Jesus's spiritual power to overcome temptation in our place doing something that adam could not do doing something that israel could not do doing something that we cannot do he fulfills all righteousness and just as verse one of chapter four says he was full of the holy spirit when he went into the temptation now he is full of the holy spirit as he comes out of the temptation verse 14 and jesus returned in the power of the spirit to galilee and not only that But he's doing some ministry, apparently, because a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, possibly due to the recent story about what had just happened in the wilderness, but also because, verse 15, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So things have started well, you might say. Jesus overcomes the temptation, that's the first point on your outline, if you're Uh, following along in the outline, temptation is overcome. Jesus comes out of the temptation. He is in the power of the Holy Spirit. Reports are going on about him in his teaching ministry, and things seem to be going well because it says in verse 15, he's being glorified by all his fame is spreading. People are hearing about this person, this man from Nazareth, and they're it's remarkable. They're excited. Something is going on here, and his fame is growing. So he's been away from Nazareth for some time, and now he's coming back. Verse 16, the town of Nazareth. This is not where he was born, right? He was born in Bethlehem, but this is where he grew up. This is where his parents raised him. This is where he returned. If you remember when we talked about that episode when he was 12, this is where he returned after being lost in Jerusalem for a few days in his Parents found him, and the text says that he went back to Nazareth and was submissive to him. So back to the place where he was raised, his hometown. And the verse 16 says, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So quickly into point two on your outline, custom follow Jesus teaches in his hometown synagogue, and it says, as was his custom, I... I think here is meant to imply that his custom was not merely to go to the synagogue, but in fact he was teaching in the synagogue. The reason I say that is because verse 15 says that he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. So this was something that he was doing. He was traveling, he was preaching in local synagogues. So that was his custom. Now these synagogues likely arose and were developed during the time of the Babylonian captivity, and it was during a time when the temple couldn't be used. The temple being Israel's place of worship, place of gathering, kind of the centerpiece of the religious life of Israel. Well, if you are displaced from your land and you don't have a place to worship, well, something has to come in place of that, and that's probably where these synagogues arose, and they became the worship centers. They actually also became social centers for the Jewish people, maybe even educational centers, and and sometimes even may have served as guest houses, And the typical Jewish synagogue would have been outfitted with benches that surrounded the perimeter. There may have been uh, seating according to rank and importance for the men, and there would have likely been women here as well. Women could have gone to the synagogues. And the main decor of the synagogue would have been candlesticks, maybe some instruments like horns and trumpets, and so on. And this is where Jesus goes. This is where the Jews would have went for worship for the reading of scripture for the teaching of scripture this is the center of religious and even social life in israel and nazareth has their own synagogue and that's where jesus goes and it tells us that on the sabbath day he stood up to read well what's this all about well, he stands up to read just kind of out of the blue hey kind of like what one of you just stand up hey i'm going to read this morning and jr would have said no you're not i'm going to read well, what's, what's happening here? Jesus is standing up to read. Well, a typical synagogue service would have gone like this. The Hebrew scriptures would have been read in about one to three verse units, usually from the Torah and then from the prophets. And the reader would have stood up to read and then sat down to teach. But after the reading, an invitation would be given to, for someone to offer instruction on the text. That may have been the person who read. That may have been someone else. Who is there at the synagogue? But someone would offer some sort of instruction on the text, whether it was the person who read it or somebody else. In this case, Jesus is going to both read it and then offer some thoughts on it. So it says in verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given him. So here's the setting Jesus is going to stand up to read, and the scrolls, remember, we don't have the codex yet, we don't have the book yet. The book hasn't been invented yet, so these are scrolls now, and you have individual scrolls for individual books of the Old Testament, and you're going to have them locked up in a sacred place, a special place, and the the person who's overseeing the synagogue likely, who would have had, like librarian and custodial duties, he's going to take this scroll and hand it to the reader. And it, from the studying I did, it, it seemed as though there probably wasn't a set reading for particular times. In other words... He was handed. Jesus was handed the book of Isaiah, but he was the one who could choose from where to read. In Any case, what happens is that Jesus is handed the book of Isaiah, the scroll of Isaiah, and he turned specifically to what we now know as Isaiah 61. And it says that he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. So this is coming out of Isaiah 61 with One sentence omitted, we'll talk about that in a moment, with one sentence omitted and one sentence inserted from Isaiah 58. We'll talk about those things in a moment, but let's read what Jesus read on this day in Nazareth during his homecoming, his homecoming address. Here it is. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This, Like I said, this would have been from Isaiah, what we now know of is Isaiah 61, because we now have chapter and verse numbers, quotes it nearly ver- verbatim. He leaves out one sentence, the binding up of the brokenhearted, and then inserts a sentence that most scholars see is from Isaiah 56, pretty unanimous, and it's, this sentence, to set the oppressed free. And then the question is, is why insert the sentence from Isaiah 58? And I would argue that Isaiah, if you turn to Isaiah 58, you would see that that chapter is God rebuking Israel very sharply. Some of the sharpest words you will find in the Old Testament towards Israel's hypocrisy. They are all about religion. They are all about temple sacrifices. They are all about the various trappings of religion and doing all kinds of rituals and so on, yet they are corrupt in how they deal with one another. There's oppression of the poor. There's oppression of workers and employees. There's wickedness abounding in people's personal lives. Ethically, they're all over the map. It's a sad and sorry situation, but oh, they're going to make it to the temple and they're going to worship and they're going to sacrifice. And God rebukes them severely in Isaiah 58, and he is tired of the religion. God will have nothing to do with religion that is bereft of a personal life that matches the worship that you give God on that day. And so God rebukes them in Isaiah 58. And part of the issue was that, that is what the, they were oppressing the poor. They were oppressing their neighbor. They were oppressing their servants. They were not being fair not being just. Then it's possible that Jesus inserts this phrase to say that he is going to be the one to do what Israel is failing to do. And in fact, that's what Isaiah 61 is all about. This person upon whom the Spirit of the Lord will be will be the one who will fulfill what Israel is utterly failing to do at this present moment. So Jesus quotes this passage rolls up the scroll, and gives it back to the attendant and sits down. This passage that was bursting with good news. Bursting with good news. I think that's the right word. This, is, this passage from Isaiah 61 is full of good news. News that the Jews would have welcomed very gladly. In its original context, this would have been a passage that was found in, in between Isaiah 60 and 66 passages and chapters in the in the latter part of Isaiah that are all about Israel's restoration. Israel up to this point had had some hard times and they're about ready to go into exile and they're going to get several waves of exile. Israel might already be there and Judah's going to get thrown in with it. They're going to get several waves of exile and it's going to be hard for them and they're going to be looking forward to redemption. They're going to be looking forward to restoration. And so this person that Isaiah prophesies about says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and he's anointed me to do this, to proclaim good news to the poor. To send him to proclaim liberty to the captives. Well, they are presently going to be, or they are going to be, or presently in captivity. And by the time this text is uh, written and it's collected and then used within Israel's religious life, they would have uh, read this text in their present exile and longed for these things to happen. This person upon whom the Spirit of the Lord rests will proclaim the recovering of sight to the blind, and he will be the one who sets at liberty those who are oppressed. So this person is more than a prophet, because he's actually going to be about the business of setting those at liberty who are oppressed. And so this text the, the Jews would have heard and seen as there as this person coming to restore them to bring them into this promise full and glorious restoration that Isaiah chapter sixty through sixty six is all about, and Jesus quotes it. Doesn't say anything about the words or what all that they mean or how she we should understand the various features of it all he says as he sits down and every eye is fixed on him these are this is strong language people were riveted people are riveted on this man from nazareth who just came home and is reading isaiah 61 it says and all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing now just we we have to put ourselves in the place of israel at this moment okay they have had a history of being oppressed and occupied by other countries. And here comes this guy from Nazareth, this man, the carpenter's son from Nazareth, saying, the promises of full and glorious restoration from Isaiah 61, yeah, that's fulfilled today in your hearing. And it's all good news. If you turn back to Isaiah 61, you'd find that The sentence after to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor says something about God's vengeance being enacted upon Israel. And Jesus stops right at proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Why? Because in this coming, he's come to save. In his second coming, he will come to judge. But this coming, he's come to save. And so this is all good news. And he's saying it's fulfilled in their hearing. It says that he began to say to them, So I actually take this to mean that he didn't just say this one sentence that he in what he said also he also explained that t- how this scripture was fulfilled in your their hearing. Well, you could imagine the response, right? Here we are, stuck in roman occupied Israel, a history of bad news, with good news in the books that we're waiting to to have occur in our Uh, and have it happen and here comes this man saying it's fulfilled in your presence it's fulfilled in your hearing meaning that hey i am this guy i am this one upon the whom the spirit of the lord is upon i am that person and they are excited about that as you could very well imagine what does it say verse 22 and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth well indeed they were this was good news they spoke well of him they marveled this is not disbelief in terms of what it says here this is amazement this is wow this is good news this is this is good for us these are gracious words this is god's grace being spoken of through isaiah and so they liked what they heard. They really liked what they heard. And there, there seems to be perhaps a hint of incredulity. You hear, see here at the end of verse 22, and they said, is not this Joseph's son? So I do say, take this as a bit of skepticism, a bit of incredulity. Who is this bearer of good news? And exactly how is this going to play out? But broadly speaking, generally speaking, this seems to be a positive response to what Jesus has said. They marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. This is, wow, who is this guy? I don't know who he is, but man, we like it. This is good stuff. So we see the temptation overcome. Jesus begins his ministry. The uh, custom is followed. Fulfillment is declared. And as we'll find out in Jesus' ministry, and it should already be present in this text, we should understand Jesus' statement and use of Psalm 61 to, to refer to more than just physical deliverance. See, Israel needed to know, they needed to remember that the reason they were having physical oppression problems was due to what? Their sin, and no matter what they did, they could not get themselves out of their sin problem, which is why they were constantly enduring physical deliverance issues. They were constantly needing deliverance from their physical enemies. Why? Because they were being disciplined for their sin. What they needed at root was deliverance and freedom not from the oppression of their physical enemies but from their spiritual enemies namely sin which is why the book of Luke begins with Zechariah's prophecy that Jesus will be the one who comes and brings about the forgiveness of sins so Jesus declares fulfillment the admiration is expressed they're excited about here about the soon possibility of experiencing the promises Of Isaiah 61, but then what? Now, if you remember, was it a couple weeks ago, J.R. preached on John 3, and you remember when Nicodemus goes to Jesus, how does he begin? He begins with a compliment. And here we have some compliments about Jesus. Gracious words, they're speaking well of him who is this guy? We like what we're hearing. He sounds good. Good rhetorician. The content's good. The delivery's good. Let's hire this guy. This is good stuff. Compliments. And J.R. nailed it um, a couple weeks ago. Jesus does not take compliments. Don't try to compliment Jesus. He won't take them. And this got me to thinking what is the hidden enemy to faithfulness for a lot of us? It's a hidden enemy. Compromise, sexual compromise, financial compromise, greed, lust. Those are clear and obvious enemies to faithfulness in our lives. You want to know another enemy of faithfulness in our lives? Compliments. How many times? Have you been derailed from speaking the truth to somebody to confronting someone with truth that would be spiritually beneficial for them, that would put them on the right tra- track, who would, that would enable them to repent? How often have you needed to confront someone with the truth to only hear them compliment you and you don't do it? Oh, I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want to make them feel bad. And they're really nice to me too, so I'm just going to sidestep the issue. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. Notice exactly what happens in the midst of the murmuring, or not even the murmuring, but the the kind of the din of complimentary statements about Jesus. Notice what Jesus says. Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. (laughs) That's no way to take kind words said about you. Jesus will not be derailed from speaking the truth because of compliments. He will not be derailed, influenced, persuaded, or otherwise manipulated by people speaking well about him. He will speak the truth to you whether you compliment him or whether you speak ill of him. Jesus will speak the truth. And he is to be followed in this example how many of us are derailed from speaking the truth in people's lives because they speak well of us. May it not be said of us anymore. Now, it may seem to us like Jesus is picking a fight. Look at how he goes on. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in our hometown as well. Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, but in truth I tell you, and then he goes on, to say a few things that we'll find out are not very pleasing to the ears of these people at the, attending the synagogue. Now, it may seem to us like Jesus is picking a fight, but the reality is that Jesus is speaking the tru- truth to a group of religious dr- Jews who had covered their wicked, hypocritical hearts with religion and who were utterly clueless about their relationship with God. And Jesus will simply not tolerate them continuing in their self-deception he won't allow people to continue in their self-deception some of us in here may be turned off by the hard words of jesus it's the hard words of jesus that soften your heart that bring you joy because they deliver you from sin And Jesus will not allow these Jews to continue in their self-deception. They are glad to hear these gracious words about Isaiah 61, failing to consider that they're in utter rebellion against God. Sure, they've gotten actual idols out of their country, but they're full of all kinds of idolatry and sin. And the reason why Jesus seems overly confrontational to us is because a lot of us, just because it's the air that we breathe it's what we read on cnn we are used to a polite harmless religion and so we read this and we're like jesus why are you so mean that's not polite how are you going to engage with these guys if you talk like that we want to we need we need to organize a, a round table with these folks and you need to you need to banter back and forth and you need to hear their opinions that would be the kind and polite and gracious thing to do. Jesus won't have it. He's not persuaded by their compliments, and he knows they need to be brought out of their self-deception, and so he gets right to business. He gets right to the confrontation, and this is a good thing for them. They need to be woken up. Well, what does he say, actually? What does he say to them that that starts the controversy. Well, he says, physician, heal yourself. And, and this this proverb, it's, it's hard to determine where this proverb came from, the source, or even really what it means when you isolate just the words, physician, heal yourself. I think if you follow the argument and you follow the words that he says right after that, physician, heal yourself, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as, as well. The basic meaning is prove it. Jesus is saying at some point in the very near future, you're going to say to me, you're going to tell me to prove that I am who I say I am. You've heard the reports of all the miracles and all the excellent teaching that I've, that I've done, even in Capernaum. And you can turn to uh, John chapter 4, and that tells us about how Jesus healed a royal official's son. That happened in Capernaum. But nevertheless, they're not going to be convinced by that. They're going to require miracles to be done in their own hometown. They want to see it. They want proof. And so likely what this phrase means is prove it. Physician, heal yourself. Prove that you are who you say you are in this Isaiah 61 passage. And they're going to require Jesus to do some kind of work in their presence. And that, he's claiming that's going to happen in the near future. And something else is going to happen in the near future. Verse 24, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And that's about ready to be fulfilled too, as we'll see in a moment. This homecoming is not going to end well. Not going to end well. This statement here, though, where he says no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, shouldn't be taken strictly to refer to address or this kind of specific locale of, of a town. Rather, similar to what John says of Jesus in John 1.11, where he says he came to his own and his own rejected him, as Jesus. Brings in Elijah and Elisha, these two prophets who were rejected by Israel. Jesus is meaning not only hometown, but hometown means all of the nation of Israel. Prophets were simply not accepted. True prophets are simply not expe- uh, accepted in the land of Israel. And Jesus will not be, just like Elijah was not, and, and Elijah and Elisha were not accepted. Jesus will be rejected. The immediate fulfillment of being rejected by his hometown will happen, but it has broader meaning, broader reference. And what is Jesus going to do now, though? He says that no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, verse 25, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came all over the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed except for Naaman the Syrian. Oh, boy. That's not what you say to win friends and influence people. That's not going to get you on the side of these synagogue attendees. What is Jesus doing here? Jesus is going to draw these people's attention back to a time in Israel's history when God's redemptive blessings were sovereignly bestowed upon a people beyond Israel's ethnic and geographic boundaries. And as we'll find out, that did not sit well with Israel. What is he referring to? Let's turn back to briefly 1 Kings 16 verses 29-33. through 33. 1 Kings 16. what's the situation in Israel when Elijah goes to this widow, this Gentile widow? What's the situation? I'm just going to read to you. You'll be able to tell what the situation is, because I'm going to read to you about King Ahab, who was the king at that time. In the 38th year uh, year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, son of Omri, reigned over Israel, in Samaria, 22 years, and Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for him his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ephbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in, uh, in the house of Baal, and he built which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an ashereth. Ahab, and here's the summary statement, in case you didn't get all that and you didn't know all the names of the idols and all that stuff, this is all you need to know. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. That's all you need to know. That's Ahab. That's the spiritual situation that Israel is in when Isaiah, I'm sorry, Elijah steps on the scene. And because of Israel's sin, God is going to enact some discipline, and that discipline is going to come in the form of a long-term famine, a long-term drought that will grow into a famine. Chapter uh, 17, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the book of Cherith which is east of the Jordan. Well, why? Why, was, why did God preemptively send him away? Well, because when you tell a wicked king that God is going to judge you with something that's going to absolutely devastate your kingdom, you're probably going to not think well of the messenger. And so God hides his messenger and sends him onward. Well, what do you find out uh, in this story of Elijah? During this time of this great drought, He is sent to a Gentile widow. Not to Israel. Not to an Israelite widow. And not only that, but this Gentile widow, in fact, I had you turn back too quickly. Let's actually go over there. uh, Chapter 17, verse 8 and following. Elijah goes to Zarephath at at the word of the Lord, telling him to go there. Go there and dwell there. And when he came, this is Elijah, when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And she said, and she was going to get it as he was going, she was going to get it. He called back to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour and a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. She's in utter desperation because of the surrounding uh, climate and economic conditions. She has barely enough for her uh, and her son to live for even a, a few days. She's about to die. She knows it, and yet Elijah makes this request of her in verse thirteen. Elijah said to her, "Do not fear. Go and do as uh, go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward, make something for yourself and your." Son, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. So what happens here? The whole region is suffering. Israel included. God deliberately sends Elijah to someone outside of Israel's geographic and ethnic borders. And not only does he meet with her, but then blesses her abundantly giving her provision and this is a miracle of divine provision until the drought ends her flour and her oil will not run out similar situation with elisha that story is about naaman this commander of a great syrian army, uh, army an army that had just raided israel and stolen one of their little girls who is now in the service of the king uh, the enemy kingdom And Elisha is sent to this Naaman in order to heal him of his leprosy. And Jesus brings out the point. Listen, there were a lot of lepers in in Israel in the time of Elisha. And there were a lot of widows who needed help in the time of Elijah. And God did not send his prophets to them. He sent them to Gentiles. What's the point? why would Jesus even say this? I mean, is this just, this seems unnecessary. Is this unnecessary? Just trying to pick a fight? Not at all. What was the point of Jesus's confrontation? I think there's a threefold point here. Number one, Jesus conf- confronts them and uses these illustrations. See, the question is, is why Elijah and Elisha and why these two stories from their life? Number one, To undermine Israel's presumption that the blessings of salvation belong exclusively to their nation. It's something they should have always known. God has been a global God since the beginning. Be fruitful and multiply and cover the what? The earth. The blessing upon Abraham was meant to what? Bless everyone. And Israel had somehow grown sinfully na- uh, nationalistic ingrown focused only on themselves thinking that the blessings of Isaiah 61 will only be for them and God, uh, Jesus explodes this idea by reminding them that's never been the case even with Old Testament texts like ones you already know so Jesus brings up these two prophets in these two instances to undermine Israel's presumption that the blessings of salvation belong exclusively to their nation. Number two, why else does Jesus do this? And these are related. These are are intertwined. They're not each uh, absolutely distinct and separate. They're all intertwined. Number two, to emphasize the sovereignty of God's grace. To emphasize the sovereignty of God's grace. We notice that in both cases, the... In Elijah's case, he was sent to, by God to the widow. And Naaman was, was healed by Elisha. This was not just something that just happened in the history of Israel that, that the author of Kings wants to write about. This is something that God sovereignly did. Israel, despite her religion, was unable to control God's sovereign blessing. God will bless and restore and redeem those whom he chooses. And Jesus is highlighting this very point. Now here's how this ties into to Isaiah 61. Here's what should blow them away, the Jews away, and should blow, blow us away. The widow in Elijah's time and Naaman in Elisha's time were the kinds of people that, here it is, Isaiah 61 is talking about. Under the oppression of in, um, leprosy, under the oppression of drought and debt and inability to provide for oneself, poor but also knowing their poverty, knowing their sickness. Do you remember when the widow was confronted by Elijah and and, and asked for food, and she basically said, I don't have any. I'm poor and needy and destitute. Naaman, the, the Syrian, had to admit that he was a leper, and then he was healed. Elijah's widow had to to admit that she was without anything and she was provided for. These are the people that Isaiah 61 is referring to, the kinds of people that Isaiah 61 is referring to, which is why Jesus brings them back into the story. And this would, as we'll find out, will enrage the Jews. They couldn't imagine that these people are the ones who are going to be recipients of the blessings of Isaiah 61. How could that be? Well, that leads to then point number three. Why did Jesus use these illustrations? Well, to confront the Jews' self-righteousness. See, in order to receive the blessings of Isaiah 61, you have to be the poor and to be in bondage and to be blind and to be oppressed. But Israel was, and in, 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 in especially the religious leaders, were in utter refusal and denial that they were, in fact, these kinds of people. That was their problem, in fact. Jesus later, will will get to it in, in the book of Luke, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the religious leaders did not see themselves as in need of God's mercy and God's grace The publican, the tax collector, the sinner, he recognizes his need for God's grace, and he became the recipient of, as it says here in verse 19, the Lord's favor. Jesus confronts the Jews' self-righteousness with this story and exposes their hearts. That's our last point on the outline here. Hearts exposed. Hearts exposed. Look at the response. When they heard these things, all in synagogue were filled with wrath. Why? Why? See, this is interesting because they knew these scriptures, didn't they? They knew the story of Elisha. See, this is what I wrestled with this week. Why? Why would you become enraged? I mean, you know the story. I mean, do you come enraged every single time you read uh, these things in the Old Testament? Maybe they did. I don't know. But Jesus pressing it upon them in this way, bringing it together with Isaiah 61 and implying that You are going to miss out on God's blessing because of your self-righteousness, and it's passing over to people outside your ethnic and geographic boundaries. Well, that is what angered them. And the reason I believe it made them angry is because there was always an inherent animosity to this truth due to their self-righteousness. They could not bring themselves to, to embrace this idea that God's sovereign favor expanded globally. And so they are angry. Their self-righteousness is pointed out. Their uh, self-centeredness is uh, pointed out, and they are made very angry. This is what happens when we are confronted with sin in our natural state. We become quite angry. You remember Jonah, when he was told to go proclaim to to Nineveh. He didn't like that idea. He didn't want to do it. And then when God had mercy, he said he was angry because he knew God would have mercy. See, this is the problem that Israel had this hoarding of God's redemptive blessings. And so what do they do? Verse 29, they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. And so like another miracle of divine providence, Jesus is able to escape. Now is not his time. He has much more ministry to do before his time has come. And he's not going to die this way. He's going to die upon preordained plan of a roman cross to bear the sins of the world he's not going to be he's not going to die by being thrown off a cliff but oh how things changed in a matter of moments a group of people who were happy to hear jesus's words are now ready to kill him now you could think okay let's just kick him out of the synagogue let's just get him out of here and, and put a sign up um jesus not welcome and that would do the trick right no, what happens when hypocritical, unregenerate religiosity is met with truth? It wants to kill Jesus. They are not satisfied with merely locking Jesus out of the synagogue, they want him dead. And this will become the theme. For the rest of the Gospels, this desire for religious Jews who have not the Spirit of God, who don't really love God, who really don't understand righteousness, will seek out to destroy Jesus. Okay, so that's the text. Just a, as, as we close here, just a, a, a three points of application. They're going to tie in with the points that Jesus already made, but I, I want to bring them home a little uh, stronger. Three points of application. What are they? Number 1 A hard unbelieving heart will not bear to hear God's about God's global redemptive blessings. A hard unbelieving heart will not bear to hear about God's global redemptive blessings. You can know you're in a precarious and spiritually sick place if you are have animosity towards certain groups of people that you don't want to hear the gospel. If the truth of God's sovereign global grace is offensive to you, it could be that you harbor a secret animosity towards people outside your ethnic, social, economic, or political, or national circles, and you can't fathom the thought of them being brought to God's saving grace. And if that's the pattern of your affections, the pattern of your life, the pattern of your heart, you may not be a Christian. Christians have experienced the saving grace of God. We have been forgiven of our sins. And we want more than anything to see that happen for all people. Now, hell is real. And not all people will be saved. That is clear. But oh, how we want so many people to be saved. Why? Because we've experienced that same grace. But a hard, unbelieving heart will respond in a negative way towards this kind of proclamation of God's global grace. We want all people to experience such grace, whether they are moral or immoral, Chinese or Ethiopian, American or Vietnamese, rich or poor, healthy or sick, convicted criminal, or upstanding citizen. And the moment we begin to disdain the idea of a certain class or ethnicity experiencing the saving grace of Christ, we know that we're in a spiritually bad place. Israel's sick spiritual condition was exposed by their anger at the thought that God would bless anyone outside their ethnic or geographic circles. May that not ever be said of CBC. May we long, all of us, to see the gospel go to everybody, everybody, everybody. All right, point number two. Initial appreciation, admiration, and reception of Jesus' words, listen, is no necessary sign of saving faith. Let me repeat that. Initial appreciation, admiration, and reception of Jesus' words is no necessary sign of saving faith. Isn't this a theme all throughout the New Testament? Isn't this a theme all throughout the Gospels? You think about it when you you read the parable of the soils. There's a kind of reception to to Jesus' words that springs up with joy, but then falls away in times of testing because it didn't go deep. There are disciples who follow after Jesus for a time because of the temporal benefit he can give them, but then they back off when he starts to talk to them about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. In fact, Jesus enters into Jerusalem in the last week of his life to great fanfare, only to be be killed and by that same group of people who would just welcome him into Jerusalem, who are now at the last part of the week yelling crucify him crucify him this really is a theme you see throughout the gospels this kind of spiritual fickleness what is solid evidence that you're a disciple of jesus what's what's just solid bedrock evidence that you're a disciple of jesus it's not immediate joy upon when you first heard the gospel though praise god for the joy you heard when you first heard the gospel what is that steadfast, sure, bedrock evidence. Here it is, John 8, 31. Quote, quoting Jesus, If you abide in my words, you are truly my disciples. What is surefire evidence that we are disciples of Jesus? We remain in his word. All of it. A true disciple of Jesus is not willing to take only half or three quarters of what Jesus teaches, but all of it. What is the Great Commission but teaching people to obey all that Jesus has spoken? Do you abide in all of Jesus' words? Are you harboring secret animosity towards the words about greed, the words about sexual purity? I can't tell you the number of times that I have seen people spin out of spiritual control because of just one commandment in the Bible they don't like. Just one. Just one. By God's grace, let us be those who are able to receive all that Christ has said. May we come to scriptures with a willingness to receive all, all that Christ has taught. Whatever he teaches on grace, whatever he teaches on holiness, whatever he teaches on sexual ethics, whatever he teaches on worship, Whatever he teaches about God's providence, of God's sovereignty, the knowledge of God. Repentance. Okay, that's point number two. Point number three, and the last point, and we will end. Great, great news. Here it is. The gospel is for those who are spiritually poor, spiritually oppressed, and in bondage to sin. That is the best news in the universe. Are you spiritually poor? Are you spiritually oppressed? Are you in bondage to sin? If you're here sitting here today, the answer is yes. And the gospel is for you. The way the gospel passes over you to somebody else is when you don't recognize yourself as spiritually poor, spiritually oppressed, and in bondage to sin. The Jews in the synagogue at that day were angered because the redemptive blessings they thought belonged solely to them were being given to the Gentiles, but they are also angry because their self-righteousness was confronted and illustrated that those who receive the Lord's favor are those who recognize their desperate condition as what we as we saw in the, the case of Elijah and the widow and Elisha with Naaman, the Syrian, who is also a leper. The gospel is good news to those who who are spiritually bankrupt, ensnared in sin, and in bondage to the flesh, and without any human hope for deliverance. The gospel is for you. Christ has done it all. Let go of your works. Let go of your righteousness. Let go of your perceived goodness and embrace a full and complete salvation. We are the poor. We are those who are in bondage to sin, and Christ has done all for our salvation. And he speaks these tough words to the Jews of that day and to us so that we will be brought off our self-righteousness and embrace the righteousness of Christ, that perfect righteousness that we see in him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are moved by this passage. We thank you for the boldness and uncompromising clarity of Jesus. We thank you that he never took a compliment, that he was never derailed by compliments, but that he spoke the truth. He spoke hard words that we so desperately need. God, I pray that these words would sink deep into our hearts, that we would be disciples that abide in your words that we would be true disciples that truly abide in all of your words help us to recognize the places where we are we find some unwillingness to obey and would we put those sins to death we thank you so much for the gospel the freeness of grace we pray that this gospel would spread far and wide and save many many people for your glory and for our joy in Jesus name amen Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.